Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib hosting the show and today I have the honor of bringing back one of our more popular voices that have uh, come on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. is former Wimbledon semi-finalist and former silver medalist at the Olympic Games, Tim Mayotte. Hey Tim, how are you? Saqib, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. No, people got excited when I did. Like I usually don't do this. I reached out to a few of our loyal listeners and uh, everybody's thrilled and they fielded some questions. So we'll try to get all the questions in in a in a fashion where uh, we keep the tempo of the podcast. And, uh, and uh, yeah, the whole idea of bringing you back is always there. But then uh, your, your commentary on American tennis, especially the talent we've had and the challenges we are facing at that level uh, was pretty, I think, uh, pretty resounding. I think there's a there's a consensus on what you said, and let's recontinue this and uh, and uh, the focus on Fritz. He did pretty well, reaching the final in Acapulco. Uh, got soundly beaten by Nadal. No shame there. But then, uh, you know, going back to your era and the eras after that, you know, the American public is used to seeing, uh, you know, our men here contend deeper uh, in tournaments. So let's look at Taylor Fritz. I mean, how well you know his game and any improvements. Uh, You've noticed that you know you saw him make this run, and what's the ceiling for this guy? Well, I think he's a pretty solid player. I think he's gonna could potentially get around uh, twenty, maybe between fifteen and twenty. I don't, I don't think his ceiling is any higher than that, uh, given the you know the current competition. Uh, he's a very solid player. He's a, a good competitor. But uh, I don't see the kind of efficiency of movement or uh, the weapon that's needed to get much higher than that. Now, I hope he proves me wrong. Clearly, he's a hard worker and uh, he's improved his balance. He's improved his, uh, let's say, his fluidity from shot to shot. But uh, <clears throat> he's still got a long way to go if he's if you start talking about, uh, you know, somebody who's going to potentially make the finals of a slam. Hmm. So again, uh, are these guys working on technical adjustments? Uh, not that uh, I don't know how close you are to any of uh, the coaches or any of the team, Fritz or TFO, for example. Uh, do you see it's just like at this process they're working on the game? And uh, I know we spoke about this again last time, but mm-hmm. uh, is technical adjustment <laughs> still an option at this stage? It's definitely an option because if you look back over what uh, you know the best players, the top three have done, they've uh, made continual adjustments and and um, you know and I think it's important to understand technical in my mind has to be looked at in terms of with movement and um, the top three players I think have continued to improve in all of those areas and um, you know whether. Uh, you know, I've many times gone to folks at USTA and asked for the chance to work with current players, whether it be, uh, you know, Ryan Harrison or even going back to Andy Roddick and have not uh, received any kind of favorable openings to do that. And um, so uh, whether they're doing them or not, I don't know. I don't see any progress in TFO's game, certainly. And, uh, you know, it's been kind of a Sad time with <clears throat> see me, Ryan Harrison dropping off. Uh, Stefan Kozlov really fell off the map. Uh, Donald Young has kind of disappeared. And uh, so in my mind, so many you know, relatively solid players uh, who have 
you know, games have not continued to, to develop. And I think I, I look at it all from my perspective, which was, you know, when I got to the top 10, I knew that I had worked as hard as I could, but then when I hit a ceiling for me, it wasn't, I didn't know what to work on. I knew that I was working as hard as I could possibly work, but nobody was identifying exactly what the progress needed that I needed to work on. And, uh, you know, I feel for a lot of guys cause I think that they, uh, don't have this kind of specific direction. So, uh, that's a long way of saying, no, I don't know if they're working on anything technically or not. I certainly hope so. And, um, uh, but clearly the, the, you know, American game is, is in a mess at the point, at this point, <laughs> it seems mm-hmm. like it's getting worse to me as opposed to better. Yeah, that's not a good situation. Uh, so we also had the pleasure of hosting Jose Higueras at the podcast uh, right. right after the U.S. Open. And it was a similar conversation. I tried to stay original, but also brought in some question that I fielded you. And uh, he said that uh, there was a, again, we focus on clay. And I, because to me, mm-hmm. I'm not an expert like you, but I tie growing up on clay as part of essential movement, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where players can, you know, develop their game around movement and Americans have lacked that, you know, for the, mm-hmm. I don't know what the correct or polite way of saying is compared to the European or South American counterparts. So Jose said there was like a big inclination from the part of the likes of TFO and Riley Opelka. They wanted to play a full European uh, schedule on clay uh, in the last right. few years and uh, the UST was all for it. Uh, so that was an interesting observation. He said, look, our guys are willing. And in the past, you haven't seen many guys go across the pond. They might just play it like in case of Roddick would always skip Monte Carlo, go for maybe Rome and Madrid, and then that's it in Roland Garros. So you think that uh, that initiative is also going to serve, you know, the certain limits uh, some of their guys have because Opelka has a huge game. He can play on clay uh, to a certain extent with a one-two punch. So your thoughts on, you know, that kind of commitment? Well, I think it's a great idea. The problem is that what can we learn from playing on clay? And why is it that the best men in the world have trained on clay? My answer to that is that there is a fluidity and a rhythm that matches the legs with the technique that is best learned on clay. So if you watch American men move for the most part, they are in my mind kind of staccato without a rhythm and a, and a, a, the best kind of transfer of energy from the legs up into the racket. And it's tougher to learn that stuff when you're 21, 22, 23, it can be done. But if they're training on clay with an idea of how does this improve fluidity and uh, and technique simultaneously, then I'm all for it. If it's about just becoming a hardcore player on a clay court, then to me the impact will be uh, not where you want it to be. I hope that I hope that makes sense. It's a very complicated way of looking at training players, but um, right now I just don't see us and you know when jose was there too i didn't think that there was a sense of well what's the real value in clay is it learning to be able to hit variety of shots or is it really learning how to transfer energy from the ground fluidly into the strokes and and all that that entails so 
that's a that's a complicated answer to uh, what I think is important in developing. If we really want to develop great players, <clears throat> this match of movement and technique has to be almost perfect in today's environment because the because the the quality of the top players is so great. And is it again? Uh, it could be very. Uh, it doesn't make sense what I'm going to say, but I'm going to still say it. So you think uh, it could be different if a player has a one-hand backhand? Uh, you still think clay is very elemental to the player's movement, or with one-hand backhand you can make up for certain things that you cannot with a two-hander? Uh, I don't know if it makes no, sense. No, it doesn't really. It doesn't have anything to do with one-hander or two-hander or any of that. It has to do with how efficient is movement. And part of efficiency is fluidity. And then how do you then get the best strokes and match those two up? That's a long way of, uh, so whether it's, uh, whether it's Warenka and Federer or it's, uh, you know, Djokovic and, and whoever else is, you know, Nadal, obviously with the two handers, it, it, it's not that it's how fluid are the strokes and do they match up with, with, um, with the feet. And then obviously, you know, what you ha- also have right now is, you, you know, is you can't, I don't know how you can teach this, but you've got three or four of the most mentally tough players of all time. So that's, you know, that's a whole other element. I'm really looking at it more from technique and movement component. No, that's very well said. Those three, four guys are a handful of and out for everyone, but even the gap is wider. Like you said, uh, the ceiling for a, uh, Taylor Fritz is top 20, top 15, but then there's like the next string of players which are already making their move, like Dominic Team and Sasha Zverev, Daniel Medvedev, Sitsipas, Felix Ojeal Yassim. So the Americans are just, you know, uh, we, we are not making that conversation even at, at our at our fan level or, you know, the barstool level conversations. And, you know, we're not even throwing in technique, but something's very obvious. So yeah, me... so, and I, well, that's it's, it's also, I think, a cycle because. You know, I think we talked about this in the prior podcast. So young boys or young men, male players, they need idols to look up to. And that propels younger players to say, oh, I can do this. And then you get better athletes, more committed athletes with a vision of you know, what they want to become. At the longer, and I think this obviously happened in England, the longer they go without an idol to look up to from their country, the more difficult it is to attract great athletes. Because let's face it, we need great athletes. And then the longer that happens, the more difficult it is to get great young athletes involved. And then, you know, we're in trouble. Okay. So let me throw in a couple other names and then we can move past this conversation. So let's dwell a little bit on Riley Opelka. Won the New York Open. A lot of people say he's Isner 2.0 and maybe even with a higher ceiling. Your thoughts on that kind of comparison and your thoughts on Riley's game, how far he's come? I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously if he gets to Isner's level, that's pretty damn good because I have tremendous respect for John's game. Uh, To me, it seems like he moves a little bit better. I I think he uh, returns a little bit better. His backhand and his movement to that side is is probably slightly better than, than Isner. Um, Isner proved to be tremendously mentally tough. Uh, his capacity to deliver in tiebreakers, Isner's, and uh, obviously to hang in and really rely on the one-two punch, I think was was exceptional or is exceptional still. 
So <clears throat> if Alpaca does get to 10 or 9 or 8, wherever uh, Isner is at, I think that's pretty great. So a 2.0 wouldn't be a put down. I think he probably moves a little bit better, like I said. The question is, you know, can he deliver the way Isner did uh, with the, with his serve and his forehand in big moments? So I think it's pretty high ceiling for Riley. He moves, uh, you know, I think he's got the focus. I think he seems tough, but we haven't seen him in, uh, you know, in, in slams and how he's going to tolerate three out of five, which obviously uh, Isner did. And I, th- that's the other point you know, I really need to come back to is, you know, I was watching uh, Malfis play. Djokovic the other day in um, in Dubai, and it's just you you, know, you could see how hard Monfils was working. He had those three match points; he could have won the match. But even if he won that set, you know, to do that for three sets against these best guys, you know, who is who is out there now that can go that deep into a slam and win three out of five set matches? Um, uh, and it's you know that again is another another difference of level between the top guys and uh, and everybody else. Okay, so this is uh, yeah I'm going to deviate a little bit from the plan we had. So you talked about Monfils, uh, he's a top player by his right, and so were you in your day. So could you relate to him like what he's going through when he's playing a man like Djokovic who's had his number 16-0, and then when those match points come, what is a player thinking? <laughs> how how how, how quickly brought how, back a lot. Of- a lot of bad memories, you know, because I uh, lost to Lundell, I think, 17 or 18 times in a row. I don't know. It's just, it's so painful because you, you're you exhausted and, you know, you just feel like you're so close. And if you can just get one more, you know, big serve. But as we saw, I was actually watching that with some friends at my academy. And I said, you know, Djokovic wins this match. And they said, no way. It's 6-3 in the breaker and it's all over. And, you know, those guys, you just know that you have to deliver something special to beat them. And uh, he wasn't able to do that. He missed a couple first serves. And it was just very painful to watch. Now, when you do that in a in a Grand Slam situation, then it goes up exponentially. Because, to, you know, you're, now you're talking two sets all or two sets to one with the world watching as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a smaller audience, then, uh, you know, the pressure just goes through the roof. So it's fun to watch it in that environment. But, you know, to know that Monfils is just pulling every last trick he can. But there he was. You could see him dying. And he was he was bending over at, uh, you know, late in the second set. He was tired, exhausted. At that point, Djokovic was just getting ready to go. Is there something, again, you can mentally prepare? I'm sure he knows the record. And in your case, like you said, you had a tough out against Lendl. Is there something a coach can do? How, what would you tell Monfils if, if hypothetically, you were, you know, is <laughs> <What>? this? <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is where, you know, you start separating, you know, what, whatever this X factor is that, that is there something a coach can do? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I know that I was so excited to hear uh, the story about Wawrenka and um, and uh, I'm sorry, I forgot who was coach. Was such a great coach, um, Magnus, Magnus Nor- Norman. Yeah, Norman. Yeah, and how Wawrenka was freezing up before he went out and won the finals at the U.S. Open. So Magnus, I think, could probably tell you better than anybody. But uh, to get a player to believe that they can deliver in that moment 
uh, you know, I don't know. That's what separates the champions from everybody else. Okay, so, so. again, another question I got, I think, from someone was, would you ever be open to coaching at the pro level? And if yes, what kind of a talent or what kind of a player would attract you to come back? Uh, yeah, I'd love to, pl- you know, I'd, I'd love to coach a good player, but I'd like, to me, the most interesting period is between, uh, let's say 16 and 20, because I think there you're going to, you can always develop a player's game, but in there mentally, technically, uh, you know, you're really starting to mold them towards the, uh, you know, towards the finish line, which is obviously complete competing at a high level of the tour. I'm really not interested in traveling. I can't uh, in a full-time uh, capacity. So somebody in that range would be of, of great interest to me. I think I could make a huge impact as as we start to look at these final refinements that a play, player needs to make. So you, want, don't, you don't want to do what other guys do, like a consultant for 10 or 12 weeks, travel with an established player? Is that... Is it yeah, not that. Yeah, I mean, a consultant to me, consulting is not that interesting. It's a, you know how to really mold the champion, and I think they're most moldable at that at that younger age. Although, yeah, I, I'd love to you know give some thoughts here and there, but it uh, depends on the personality as much as the uh, you know the situation. But but somebody of sixteen to twenty who is really trying to make a move in their game would most appeal to me. Okay. All right, so let's uh, focus on the current players, the top players. Uh, a couple of questions came along their lines. One is, uh, uh, I think, Federer and Chorich, uh, Murta Tunga, who's actually a contributor in our Tennis with an Accent website and podcast, uh, he wanted me to ask you this question. He said, Federer and Chorich do this sometime. They serve in volley on the second serve a little more consistently. Djokovic has started doing it. So you think, is that an underused play out there, or you think it's more... Uh, just taking advantage of players are not used to, and then still, with that notion out there, very few people try that. Is that an underused option? It is the uh, the the greatest weapon is to be able to get somebody out of their rhythm at the highest level, and that is certainly one of the. <clears throat> tricks or or uh, tactical approaches that somebody that is not really used so yes it it should be used more often and serve and volley whether it's first serve or second serve should definitely used more often because it it changes the whole way a player looks at the court um that person should whoever should go back and look at vilander to me for instance who was one of the great uh he had the greatest capacity to decide when to switch up and move forward. Connors did that as well. So it's not just first, not just second serve, but first serve as well, because it just makes the whole court look different when a player serves in volley. So absolutely. Yes. But I think on a second serve, uh, don't you have slightly more time if you kick it or spin it, then you can come behind. Isn't there more time or. Yeah, the kick serve works well, but also what what happens ironically uh, is that a lot of players now they actually step back when a person's hitting a second serve. Uh, obviously, Nadal does this, so I think it would be a brilliant technique against him. So because they they like to wait for the ball to drop into their zone and they can rip it, but they're so far behind the baseline that if you sneak in on a kick second serve, they're going to be uh, really out of position, 
And then that makes them think about uh, change, having the forcing somebody to change their position. So the, the player who can take somebody out of what their comfort zone, as far as changing rhythms and positioning are the most successful players. And if you can do that by serve and volleying both first and second serve, then I'm absolutely all for it. And I think you could see that, you know, whether it's, you know, McEnroe could take the ball early or lay back, you know, Villander could do the same. These guys, they can move forward, they can move back. And to do that, certainly with a serve and volley is, is a great addition. Sure. Uh, let's turn Villander. I've seen some of Villander and I've also seen, you know, a lot of highlights of McEnroe at some live matches. So back in your playing days, and let's throw Lendl in there too, a lot of these guys would throw in offensive lobs as a tool to pass someone. You don't see that today. Maybe with the exception of Andy Murray. Even the big three don't use offensive lobs. Yeah, they'll do defensive lobs, but the offensive topspin lob is also, is it a lost art or is it just the way the game is played? It's not an option. Well, it's definitely an option. I think they probably feel, first of all, they're not seeing as many passing or lobbing opportunities. So in my day, players came forward 50, 60, 70 times in a match. Now it's whatever, it's 15, 20. <clears throat> so you're not going to get that many more options or opportunities to, to, to throw in some lobs. Second of all, I think that the strings have made it so that passing shots can be you know, more easily executed because you're ripping with uh, a lot more spin. But that doesn't mean that players shouldn't, you know, start to add in more topspin lobs because I think it's, a, you know, especially with these strings today, you could, you, if you practice it, you could, you know, basically these guys could land it close to the line every single time. So I'm surprised they don't do it more often. But this is the way players aren't as good at, cutting off angles at net and playing the net they're also the passers don't you know don't do it in competition as much so they're just not as good at it interesting yeah there's always uh, you know these dynamics uh, that you wonder you know how uh, if there's enough conversation at the pro level about that i'm sure you know there's so much data and so much analysis but you see only few uh, players try to mix it up when the chips are down. And that's when I think well, I see most of these that, guys use it too. That's the, that's the thing you just put your finger on. It's not, it's, it's one thing to have the analysis. It's another thing to be able to have three or four options that you can pick instantaneously to use in a moment. And if you, you know, I, I watch my players play and they're, you know, high level levels, sec, sectional or national ranked players you know, they might have, they might come to net seven or eight times in a whole match. So that means that the guys who are passing them are only looking at X number of times. And so there's just not a lot of practice for it. So what, you can't pick something instantaneously, something you don't practice at all. So uh, it's, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a lost art, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a much uh, rarer art than it used to be. Yeah, it's funny, you know, like with all the data point, I was talking to Misha Zverev a couple of years ago at Newport and I presented this question about how he consumes data. 
and he said, you know, data is good, but then there's no data about wind, there's no data about sun. So again, that was a very funny conversation. <laughs> he said, you know, nah, da- man, data, data, I think. <laughs> he said, there's not enough, you know, information when someone's saying, oh, this guy's second serve is not good, or the kick serve. He said, yeah, a lot of time the sun's at the wrong end, or you're at the wrong end, and so, so anyway, just wanted. No, it's true. That's a really you know that, and that's part. Of, I think part of the problem of coaching now is there's and playing. There's so much data. You know, if I had going through my head, well, if I go down the line here, I've got 62 percent chance of winning versus uh, you know 58 going cross court, and then uh, you know, except maybe if I go at the guy, then it's 54 uh, percent. I mean, I go out of my mind. You know, you, it's it's uh, so complicated, and to be able to pull the pull the trigger in the moment, in whatever the circumstances are, is just uh, too much data can get in the way. Hmm. All right, so let's uh, shift our gears to a different conversation. Uh, you applied for the ATP Council, and there are a few questions, you know, regarding that. Uh, so one is obviously. Would you apply or would your approach be any different for the application if you were doing it all over again? Well, I, I did it exceptionally poorly as far as applying for it, but out of consciousness and necessity. So basically what happened was um, I first heard that Gimbelstab uh, who was obviously, a, in my mind, not the appropriate person for the position, was running um, unopposed, which obviously I didn't want him to become the, on the board of directors again. I thought that would be a, you know really bad for the tour. So I applied, but with the idea of just bringing attention to the fact that other people needed to run. Um, I knew at that point that I did not have the connections inside of the player council to make anything, to to have a a really good shot at winning. So I did it in kind of a a noxious way. I went on Twitter, announced what I thought was wrong about the tour, that Gimbal Stop shouldn't be a part of it. Um, I tried to reach out to some of the players, but but uh, didn't had very limited contact with them because they didn't know who I was from you know the years before. So that's, I would say that uh, would I do it differently? No, I did it the way I could do it, and I really wanted to draw attention to a couple issues, and which I think I was very successful at, which was one, gimbal stop should not be on the board. Two, that the players uh, needed to try to find a way to get more resources from the uh, more money, basically from the grand slams and, uh, and three, the hope of getting more money for the lower ranked players, specifically the players playing the challenger tour. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, uh, you hit upon some of very commonly talked about points in the, in the points that need to be, improved for the overall well-being or the health of the tour but just uh, let's stick with the process so you think since you've been removed for more than at least i would say fairly more than two decades you know since your retirement i don't know how close you are to the actual atp you think maybe the players or the body that chose the candidates was there also a factor like 
it's nothing against you or other applicants. It's just like they went with someone they knew better because it's a personal relationship and uh, they wanted to bring someone who resonated better. Is that, uh, is that fair to say? Or Yeah, well, a lot of it is about who the, who the player, because it's the player council eventually, you know, ultimately who makes the decision and wasn't, they didn't know me. Um, and um, so that, that makes total sense to me. I, I think they went with Weller Evans, who was uh, from my generation, but then ultimately Weller got voted out. But the underlying element is these issues have been around since I was on the board of directors and president of the player council. And what's important is that the players start to move more aggressively at getting money from the slams. There's no question that's that's going to be the the biggest thing, because that's, first of all, what's most fair. I think what's going to be even more difficult to do then is to use some of that money to help players make the transition into the uh, into the main tour from the lower ranked. So that's going to be a, even a tougher issue. But at least the players now are starting to make a much more aggressive push to the slams to try to get the money that they they really deserve. So that's a that's a good first start. And I think it was someone on Twitter. Uh, in every day, there's like some interesting conversation, you know, that unfolds. And one of it was, why only the slams? If you look at the structure of the 500, the winner takes away, like, say, Dubai, for example, like slightly over half a million dollars. And then the runner-up gets 284,000 and some change. And then you look at the first round, it's just 21,000. So maybe some of the money could be shaved down. Is I mean, I know it's probably a smaller money we're talking about because Grand Slams make a lot more money. But are these topics uh, present some sort of a solution, uh, altering like the purse of the 500 or 1,000 winners? That's a small portion of it. To me, the, the bigger thing is the really at down at the entry level you know are enough players being supported as they go in as they contemplate uh playing the tour that they can make money on the challenger circuit for instance enough to to be able to make a living so that to me is a, is a critical issue now how do they disperse the money per round in the other tournaments is uh that's in more uh i'm more removed from that so that that's not as much interest, although I'm sure it is for the players. Um, you know, tennis is unlike golf in the sense that players, the the winners get sort of exponentially more than those on the way up. But you know that that how that plays out in the 250s and the 500s, I, I'm not really up to date on that. Okay, and uh, tennis calendar, the ATP calendar, the length of it and the way it's structured is the next topic I want to explore with you. And, you know, I'm sure it was very internationally when your day, there was an Asian swing, there was a European swing, then indoors. So is there anything that you would want to call out or change or would like to see change in the current setup of the calendar, how the travel is or how the surface is? Uh, anything you want to, uh, or it can be more than one thing, call, call out if you feel there's something that you would like. No, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing that would change. Uh, the the problem is again these issues have been around since since way back. So you've got two issues. Everyone says the tour is too long and it doesn't make sense, uh, which makes sense as long as players would be willing to turn down money, which they're not. 
<laughs> so whether it was that uh, Asian team tennis that they played a couple years ago or the Labor Cup now, everybody's complaining that the tour doesn't make sense and that uh, there's too many weeks. But when you offer money, players go out and play. So the players are schizophrenic on this. They, they say they want a circuit that makes more sense geographically. They say they want to have a shorter schedule. And yet when they're given the opportunity to not play, they play because they want to make a lot of money. So there's no simple answer. I think the good things that have been done are one, that they made an extra week from between the French and Wimbledon. So I think that was a, you know, a huge improvement. And uh, I think they've been trying to find a better Davis Cup schedule, whether it's, you know, whether it's a better event or not. I don't know. Uh, you know, but then every time things seem to make a little more sense, they add something like the, you know, the, the new Hopman Cup in Australia so as long as the players are willing, you know, more than able to go out and add weeks on their schedule to make a lot of money, then the schedule is going to stay messed up. So that's a <laughs> you basically have greedy players and people who want to bring tennis to different parts of the world. So there's no easy answer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is definitely compared to other sports. Uh, the average payday is not huge. And, you know, if you're not. Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic or some of the bigger names, or even Andre Agassi in the past, you know, the take-home is uh, not as much. And, you know, all the, the big stars, I think, have a big chunk of their income coming from endorsements. So. Yeah, but even but that's a good point. But even the big guys, like, a, like you know, whether it was, uh, you know, so everyone says they don't want to play an extra week, but then they had the Labor Cup. So you've got the top guys adding an extra week to their schedule when they could be resting, but instead they're playing the David, you know, they're playing that or uh, the, you know, the new Hopman ATP Hopman cup in Australia. It's, it's even the top guys are guilty of looking for big paydays. And as long as they're doing that, whether it's lower ranked players to try to, find you know an extra ten thousand dollars at another tournament or the top guys playing you know for a million dollars a match everyone says they want fewer tournaments and yet they don't show willingness to cut down their schedules when the payday is given to them yeah but the atp cup is uh, the home production you know like of the atp itself so i guess you will name the big names to promote the the launch event so i can totally see you know how how that plays out because you need the marquee names to play. If with Federer not playing, you definitely need a Djokovic and Nadal and you know Zverev and team. All the all the big names play uh, play the tournament. So I guess it's a it's a cash value too. Again, you know, speaking from You're very exactly far. Right. It's, a, it's just a, it's and and there's no um, single body that is willing to or has the ability to to exert control over the, all these uh, independent contractors. So whether it's the ATP who's invested in improving the event or it's, uh, you know, a certain kind of exhibition in one part of the world or whatever, it's it's the, the players go where the money is and they, they cry about the fact that, and I know I did it as well, the schedule's too long, blah, 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 it's not big enough break between 
between uh, you know the world championships and, and Australia, but then you know we all run out and <laughs> and I was as guilty as anybody. Somebody throws some money at you, you you pack your bags and you go play uh, because you're you know because you want to you know you want to play. You know, look like at Federer played. He didn't have to go do these events in uh, in South America or whatever in front of sixty thousand people. It's just he wanted to do it. Did, does that help his longevity? Probably not, but but um, that's just the nature of the game. No, well said. So, so let's talk about Djokovic uh, because by the time this podcast release in a week and a half, Indian Wells would have started or we would be closing on the start. So it's perfect time. The guy hasn't lost a match and is, is in scary good form. So if you are the tour, if you're the other players, I mean, this is this this could be an all-time season. That's what people are saying. His level may not be as as potent as some of his peak years, but it's pretty good. I think he's not too far off. So do you see him even losing a match in the Sunshine Double? <laughs> uh, it's so funny because you see these players and everybody thinks, oh, they're not beatable, they're not beatable, and then when they lose, they're... Yeah, could he lose? Of course he could lose. Um, is he the dominant player in the world right now? Certainly seems to be. But you know, I remember, what, two or three years ago, people were starting to think maybe his run was over. So uh, he's certainly the the number one player now. And But could he lose? Absolutely. It would just, you know. I mean, I think even if he had lost one of those points to Monfils, kind of the, you know, the aura goes away. So I, I tend to not jump on these bandwagons, but uh, there's no question he is going to be one of the dominant forces uh, for 2020. Okay, and uh, one question on uh, Dominic team. I know last time we spoke at your club, we did a podcast about your, uh, your your tournament, the inaugural tournament, and then also some of the leading contenders of the U.S. Open. So were you surprised that Dominic team made the run to the finals of Australian Open? I know we spoke about him during that time, and he said because of his game, it's more success is likely to come at clay. But he, has he cleaned up some of that... Uh, you know, that game, that, that resume that suits well on clay? Were you surprised by his run at the ATP Finals and then reaching the final in Melbourne? I was. I was present, pleasantly surprised. I think the things like he seemed to have done is, number one, he has a much better sense and much better execution when he's coming forward. So uh, that is his ability to deliver big volleys and you know transition shots been exceptional. I think his serve is uh, is much more effective, and he also seems to have returned, learned to return much better in the ad court uh, on the backhand side. So when I've watched a lot of his back two or three years ago, he seemed to really be struggling on that side as he was trying to go out and stay into the points. You know, when players would serve him out wide on the backhand side. He seems like he's much better at that now. He also seems to be coming up into the court a little bit further when he's uh, hitting his ground strokes. So when you talk about the very, very best players, they're looking for advantages in very small ways that add up. And uh, he's put those things together in in a really remarkable way that's improved his performance on hard courts. It'll be interesting to see if he can, you know, jump over this last, uh, last little bit. And, uh, but, I still think he's a little far back in the court 
off the ground. And um, but, you know, I'm sure he could prove me wrong. And at some point, somebody's going to break through. And he certainly seems to be, you know, one of the top uh, candidates to break through. But um, it's been it's been nice. And again, that's sort of when I talk about the top three, you know, they continue to improve on the margins and those margins add up to enough to staying at the very top of the game. And it's been exciting to watch him make those adjustments. Yeah, definitely. He's world number three now. And uh, let's see how the uh, rest of the year unpacks for him. And before we wrap this uh, episode, uh, is there anything you would want to talk about? Any topic that is dear to you or, you know, you follow a lot of tennis, you have your academy, you had your inaugural event last year. Any plugins you want? Uh, for the yeah, audience the, uh, well, we had the, the Thoreau Cup, $60,000 at our at our club, um, the Tim Mayo Tennis Academy at the Thoreau Club. And actually, it thinks we're going to do two weeks back-to-back uh, at the club. For um, We've got great support from the USTA. And uh, so we're hoping – we're definitely going to have one week, and we may have two weeks there back-to-back to really – now, my goal is to bring much more attention to high-level tennis, both as playing, developing players and tournaments in New England. Um, and that's really what our goal is, and we're going to build on last year's success. And is it going to be still so, WTA, or are you also joining with ATP? Oh, no, this is both both for women's, Women, yeah, $60,000, yeah, but two weeks, two weeks. So the USTA has brought a lot of support, so we're going to have two. We're really trying to build a little circuit in New England so we can keep these top women uh, up in the area. And then uh, if uh, – just more and more good players coming up to our academy. We want uh, anybody who's interested in getting their kids on the right track to becoming D1 players or playing on the tour, uh, we're the place to go to. Yeah, and I, can, I can vouch for that. I attended that event. <laughs> uh, you know, I was there, you know, firsthand with the, my friend who was a photographer that day. So we really, this is, you know, if you're in New England area, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, that's your, you know, closest opportunity to come see world-class tennis in a very relaxed environment and you know it's really close to the action so i would encourage anyone who's a tennis fan come and check this out so Great. tim i know uh, thank you so much thank you for coming on the show we'll release this in on. a week's time okay thanks so much thanks. okay bye hello everyone this is sakib uh joined by matt zemek uh, we needed to do a podcast because, you know, what transpired today as the world's, you know, trying to reset and survive this pandemic. There's a lot of nervousness, but tennis, true to its form, uh, found a way to be itself. So, Matt, <laughs> uh, what, what do we even make of this, this announcement today? I mean, fire away. Well, I think, that, you know, it has a very immediate purpose, Sakib, and that is simply to let people know it's not happening in the normal late May, early June time period so that we can, you know, people don't have to wonder about that. People can make the at least the mental adjustment and perhaps also the logistical adjustment. I mean, that is the immediate purpose of it. So we, we can just establish that. Now, on a broader level, none of us should be thinking that this is likely, that, that the uh, Roland Garros is going to actually be played in late September. I mean, it's a it's an adjustment. It's a contingency. It's an attempt to try to keep the event uh, within 2020, but with but knowing that it's simply not going to be possible to play it 
uh, in late spring. But now, you know, on the question of whether it's actually going to happen in late September, you know, th that that's just a hope. It is not an expectation. No one should have the expectation. And we all have to realize this is not just true for tennis. It's true for all sports. No one is in control. And, and that's not a, a, a critique of how well various sports are being run. It's simply that we have to, we do not know how long or how severe this uh, pandemic is going to be and what happens in the realms of, you know, containing the virus and then providing some degree of economic stability uh, so that societies stay intact. Um, all the health, the sanitation, the, 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 the uh, law enforcement, you know, maintaining stability in society, all of that has to be addressed before we can seriously entertain the idea of Roland Garros uh, actually happening in late September. So it doesn't mean that this it has no chance of happening. It just means that we shouldn't assume that anything in sports is going gonna, is gonna to occur in 2020. I would not be terrifically surprised if we've already seen the very last tennis match of 2020. But again, it is not under our control. We have to contain this virus, get to a point of social stability across the globe. Every continent, every country, hopefully we'll get to that point sooner rather than later. Um, but it's definitely going to take some time. And only then can we look at the landscape of the world as it is and wonder if we're going to have more tennis in 2020? And I mean, couldn't disagree there more. Uh, I mean, couldn't agree more. Yeah. I need to be on the same page here, but at the same time, uh, don't you think this is more like a knee jerk reaction? Of course, no one, like you said, has the visibility, how the next month is going to be forget about the next six months as you know, it's such a bigger issue. It's beyond tennis. It's about life. It's about this planet. I mean, what's going on? This is the first pandemic of our lives, as far as I remember. So that being said, it may be coming from a business place, maybe coming from a place with a lot of investment. They want to get a slot. But even just what unfolded today and then Vashik Paspasil, and I'm sure this is not the last of it. There's going to be many more voices out from the tennis world discussing this kind of a decision so with what we have, let's take a quick dive into that. I know you mentioned the bigger picture, but uh, the tennis authorities just from France making this decision, uh, looks like there wasn't much consultation, which hasn't been the theme, theme of tennis. And you have been an open advocate of some sort of player union, some sort of a uniform body. Maybe not that time, but again, since we're doing this podcast, if you want to just tackle the tennis part of this, uh, you know, try to leave the bigger picture aside, and still it's pretty knee-jerk. Don't you think so? Oh, it is knee-jerk, and, and this is definitely a time when a, a union would come in handy because when you consider all the, the several hundreds of players, it's really thousands if you, you know, combining uh, both tours, um, you know, men and women, the thousands of players who, you know, rely on the challenger circuit and the various other uh, circuits you know, below the level of the, the, the regular WTA tour, you know, the international level and up for the ATP, the 250 series and up, you know, they, they depend on uh, all these uh, lower tier events for their income. And now they don't have that, that source of income. 
yeah, a union would be a pretty good thing to ensure that, uh, you know, they could subsist, they could manage, they would be provided for to some extent. So it really exposes that particular deficiency and the lack of, you know, central organized governance in tennis. You know, there's no larger body or authority which can easily say, hey, we should give the equivalent of a universal basic income to tennis players, you know, having a tennis equivalent of UBI, uh, you know, that would be really great. But, you know, where's that central governance, that central mechanism going to, to, to emerge? We don't have one. So it really does expose the, the, the absence, uh, the lack of uh, a, a, a strong central governance in tennis and, and a union which, which can do business with that central authority. We don't have one. Yeah, it's uh, also kind of a comparison on how other sports are run, and you do uh, cover some some of the main American sports. So if you want to do a quick comparison for our international audience, uh, how the NCAA uh, took their decision, how the NBA took their decision, what tennis can learn from that, uh, not necessarily even, I'm sure, international sports like uh, football or soccer or cricket, you know, everything's been called off, but Tennis just seems to be a very independent, you know, entity and which has its, you know, various bodies. Sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And similarly, a lot of players found out the same way Matt Zemeck and Sake Bali found out on Twitter. So that's kind of bizarre. Well, it's it's worth knowing, you know, we haven't talked about this Sake at all. It's, we're, 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 we're trying to digest all the news. I mean, basically, you know, every day is like a, a week, if not a month's worth of news. Uh, that's that's life in a pandemic. That There's just an avalanche of, of huge stories, basically every 30 to 45 minutes. But let, let's talk about this briefly. You know, Indian Wells was ahead of the curve. Indian Wells called off its tournament, you know, three days before the NBA postponed its season. I mean, so in the larger scheme of things, Indian Wells was at the forefront uh, of uh, calling off an event and making sure that people didn't congregate. So, I mean, at least in that narrow localized instance, tennis was was ahead of the curve. And I think the, the thing that's worth pointing out about this, Sakib, tennis compared to, let's say, basketball, um, you know, tennis's demographic, tennis's customer base, it's a wealthier customer base. I mean, tennis tickets do not come cheaply. You know, it is not, you know, a, a, a sport with a blue collar fan base. I mean, not that there aren't blue collar fans, you know, people in the lower middle classes who don't get interested in tennis. There certainly are some fans, but you know, it is a, it is a pricier, a sport with a pricier ticket and a, a more upper middle income, uh, you know, customer base. So because you have, you know, an, an, an old, a generally older demographic involved, I think that is something that made the sport of tennis more responsive and receptive to the need to call off these events. Uh, sports with without the same demographics, I, I can't really say for sure. I mean, we, we, we do need to acknowledge that the the spread of the coronavirus and the threat about um, large crowds gathering in time, this was going to overwhelm all sports. You know, the, like, for example, college basketball, the NCAA basketball tournament, the NCAA waited until the last moment uh, to uh, to cancel that tournament. 
Um, but, you know, let's say the NCA had refused to cancel it. Well, a few days later, it would have had no choice. So even even various sports organizations which tried to postpone events and not completely cancel them, the course of human events would have overwhelmed them, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours later. So that point needs to be noted. But I think tennis and then specifically Indian Wells did act earlier rather in comparison to other sports because the demographic of the tennis ticket base, ticket buying base is older than other sports. Yeah, those are some uh, <clears throat> some very interesting points, uh, especially for someone who covers a lot of different sports. And I'm sure whoever's listening in uh, knows that what Matt does. And uh, uh, again, uh, on the parting note, uh, we will plan to produce the weekly episodes uh, in this season, which is uh, a very different kind of an off season. There's no tennis, there's no sport. And we'll try to uh, come back with regular intervals and have different voices, which has been the theme of the podcast. And uh, as for the written content, uh, uh, Matt, you want to throw some light if, uh, you know, uh, is the site going to be active? I know you've already spoken on Twitter. When there's no light, real sport, there's really not much going on as far as uh, the digital link of tennis with an accent. But parting words from you uh, till we resume action. Yeah, no, no I mean, there, there needs to be an, an actual sport to cover. And we were all gearing up to cover Indian Wells full tilt, but... Um, you know, there's no tennis being played, and uh, we don't, we do not have, you know, I, I do not get a regular salary, a regular check uh, for covering tennis. So, in in the midst of the economic uncertainty uh, caused by the coronavirus, you know, I've, I now I am lucky. The two main play outlets where I edit or, or write about sports, one of them being uh, USA Today, they have uh, insisted on staying in business. Uh, I did. I was not certain of that. I had no reassurance that that was going to be the case. But in the course of time, in the past uh, week and a half, uh, since you know everything began to be canceled in the sports world, uh, outlets are still insisting on on publishing. So that's a godsend for me. I'm still going to get a paycheck. Uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to have that. But it also just does mean that you know, for any outlet in which I'm not getting a paycheck, it just it uh, there's no reason for me to to be spending that time when I have a paid writing gig elsewhere. When tennis resumes, uh, you know, assuming it, it, it resumes later this year, you know, we'll be writing about it because we did make that commitment to write in 2020. Uh, I don't want to make any kind of commitments or statements about 2021, but if tennis does resume at some point in 2020, we are going to write about it at Tennis with an Accent. So there you go. So you heard from Matt and myself and, uh, uh, for all the loyal uh, listening base out there, we'll need your support. And once we are back in full flight, we plan to cover, like Matt said, and the podcast will be still coming your way. Uh, it's, gonna, it's not going to be easy to line up guests during the off season, but I'm trying my best. And then the regular voices of the tennis with an accent family would uh, would be reached out. But uh, uh, no, not to overpromise, but there'll be definitely additions coming from our side. So on that note. Uh, Thanks for listening for this episode and let's uh, stay safe and let's follow all the guidelines and all the directions that are needed to, to fight this unprecedented illness. Uh, and yeah, just uh, good wishes to you and your families from Sakib Mad and everyone from Tennis with an Accent. <laughs>